If you look at uh, verse 5 of Titus chapter 1, where Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Well, I don't know about you, but if I were Titus, I would say, boy, that's an imposing assignment. That's a daunting task. Titus, of course, was no rookie. Uh, he had actually been with Paul in most of his ministry, certainly when he was first at Crete. Uh, he had been with Paul when Paul went to uh, Corinth. He was Paul's personal emissary to Corinth when Paul was trying to deal with the problems that existed in that church. So he had significant experience. Um, this letter is Paul's way of encouraging Titus to hang in there and get with it, as it were. So, I've elected for the next few weeks to delve into what Titus says to us, or what Paul says to us in Titus. So let us read the first four verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, these are the words that you moved upon the heart of Paul to write. They were words that certainly were going to be read not just by Titus, but read by him to every church in Crete. They are words that you intend for the church to hear and respond to. And here we are, Lord, a church that in many ways find ourselves somewhat like Titus found the church in Crete. We find ourselves without a shepherd, we find ourselves in need of putting things in order so that we are prepared when you send us a shepherd. So we stand in the line with Titus as we read these words. We pray to give us ears to hear what you have to say to us, O Lord, because certainly you have something to say. And you... You moved upon Paul's heart to write the kind of greeting that he wrote in order that 
the people in Crete and ultimately the people here in Grace Baptist Church might understand what it is you expect. So open our hearts and our minds, O Lord. Help us to respond to these words as what they are, the words that come from the living God, the Lord of the church. In his name we pray, amen. I think um, we can infer Paul's concern for the church by noticing that throughout this epistle, we won't notice it specifically, we'll just refer to it here, but as we notice when you read through Titus, and I hope you have, and if you haven't, I hope you will. It's only three chapters. You can probably read through it in less than 15 minutes, even if you're a slow reader. So go home today and read through it, and maybe read through it every day from now on. But I think we can infer from Paul's constant reference to the good works, which appears in this epistle five times. That means it shows up at least once in every chapter. Someone has said that chapter 3 and verse 8 could be the key verse of the epistle. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Brothers and sisters, we're in the process of searching for a new pastor. I think it would be a mistake of huge magnitude for us to concern ourselves exclusively with what kind of man are we looking for. And this is not to say that that is not important. It obviously is of supreme importance. But if that's all we concern ourselves with while we are searching for a pastor, I think we're going to miss what God has for us in taking us through the process of being without a pastor. I think that's what I've discovered in these first four verses that Titus wrote to, or that Paul wrote to Titus. When Paul urged upon Titus to take upon himself the task of putting things in order, he expected Titus to understand what kind of priorities ought to drive that, that project, that assignment, that responsibility. So Paul, in effect, wrote to Titus and said, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is what I've given my life to. Well, what better example can we have than Paul the Apostle? And so I went through there, and I discovered that if you take what Paul says about himself and about his ministry, 
you can discover in those first, actually, well, in, in those first four verses, you can discover six priorities that God expects his servants and his church to establish. By the way, I should have said this before I got started here, but I did prepare some handouts, and they're on the table over there. If you want one, it will help you track with me as I explore these six priorities. Uh, feel free to grab one. Thanks, brothers. I appreciate your help. Anybody else want one that, that they can hand out to you before we keep going? There you go. Anybody else? One over here. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate that. So we're going to look at what Paul says, phrase by phrase, and discover the six priorities that we ought to adopt for ourselves, certainly, and, and it'll only be true of our church to the extent that it's true of us. So as we adopt these six priorities for ourselves, we will thereby be adopting them for our church. As we search for another pastor, what are the priority things? Now, before I get into that, let me just help us, and I don't want to insult your intelligence, but let me just remind us of what we're talking about when we talk about priorities. A priority is a, is a non-negotiable. A priority in your agenda takes precedence over everything else. If your agenda needs to be adjusted and something needs to be sacrificed, it will not be the priorities. It will be something else. That's what makes it a priority. So keep that in mind as we take a look at what Paul says to us about priorities. Paul... Here he identifies the first priority, our identity. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He sets forth two things that identify us or should identify us. He's a servant. We're not used to thinking of ourselves as servants, I don't think, are we? The, the word here really is much stronger than the English word servant. The word really should be translated slave because that's what it is. That's what it means. But what does it mean to be a servant of God? To most people, being relegated to the place of servanthood is to be put down a level or two, but not in God's program. God used the term as a term of nobility. You only have to read it in, the, in its context 
in various places to pick that up. Deuteronomy chapter 34, he speaks of Moses. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab. Moses, the servant of the Lord. That's hardly a humble position, is it? Right after Deuteronomy, there comes Joshua, and God elevates Joshua into the place of leadership. And in, in directing him, he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. That's how he lays claim to Moses. Moses, my servant. Then you get to the prophets. Jeremiah wrote, in Jeremiah chapter 7, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. My servants, the prophets. So, Moses was a servant of God. The prophets were servants of God. And you know, don't you, that you and I are servants of God? And that we don't have a choice about it? Do you know that? Paul wrote to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he was in discussing in a context of, of, of rebuking them for their immorality, but he lays down an eternal principle that fits in every walk of life. When he said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. That can't be said strongly enough. You are not your own. How so, Paul? For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What did Christ do on the cross? Well, you say he, he won my redemption. Yes, he did. Do you know what redemption means? It means the Redeemer in whatever situation we put them, has redeemed whatever or whomever he, he has redeemed at a price. It cost Christ something for you to be redeemed, and that price bought him the right to call you his servant. So Paul in other contexts, as an example in Colossians chapter 3 and verses 23 and 24, where he's writing to the servants slash slaves, the Christian slaves in that church who were serving Christian masters in that church, he said to them, whatever you do, you slaves, Work heartily 
as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Now, uh, none of us here are slaves. Somebody might say, well, I can tell you've never worked where I work. But uh, be that as it may, none of us really are slaves. The matter of slavery has been settled a long time ago. So what does Paul have in mind here? How can, how can we translate this first century principle to the 21st century? Simply this, that when you go to work tomorrow, wherever it is you work, you work there not as for the person who's paying your paycheck. You work there as for the Lord because that's whose servant you are. And it doesn't matter what the workers around you think. It only matters how is God pleased. Believers, all of us, are servants. But Paul also called himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle simply means messenger, uh, sent one. And that can be said of every Christian. Indeed, it must be said of every Christian. It must be applied by every Christian to every Christian's life. If not, then you don't really understand the experience of reconciliation. Read with me, or follow me as I read, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Entrusting to whom? Those of us who have been reconciled. Have you been reconciled? Have you met Christ? Placed your faith in Christ? Become a redeemed child of God? If so, then you have been reconciled to God in Christ, and it is to all reconciled people that God has entrusted the message of reconciliation. Therefore, he goes on to say, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we could say that part of our identity is to be ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador goes into foreign territory, very often hostile territory, to do one thing, speak for his leader. The, the ambassadors all over this world, they are not ambassadors of the United States. They are ambassadors of the president of the United States. And they speak for him. 
They don't have the right to decide whether what he has to say is important. They don't have the right to say whether now is a good time to say what he has to say. They just have the responsibility to speak for him. I don't know where, where your ambassadorship takes you every day, but that's what God expects of those of us who are his ambassadors. And by the way, all of us are by God's plan. That's the first priority. Let us prioritize our identity as individuals and as a church. Our identity is to serve God by, by giving forth his message. Secondly, there is the priority of our focus. Now, the identity sort of implies the focus, but let's read it anyway. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, when you put the term faith and God's elect together, you're talking about salvation. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. The elect are part of the elect because God chose just to, that very thing, to elect them. But God told them about that. God told them how they got to be part of that, how they could be part of God's family, and they believed something and became God's elect. Let me show you how that fits together. Uh, look back at uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I, it would be profitable if all of you w went there. Ephesians chapter 1. It's important because I want you to see it in its context. Begin at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. There you have that election idea. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, there it is again, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of, the, of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved one. In him, that is the beloved one, that would be Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, I'm going to skip some of those other verses and drop down to where he pulls the faith idea in. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, here it is, catch this, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, 
you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you see the connection? He starts out earlier saying he has chosen us. He has predestined us. It's his choice. You have believed in him and by virtue of that have been sealed. Faith in what God has said he has done. The two things go together and that's the gospel. God says, I've taken care of it. Christ went to the cross, sin was taken care of. I judged sin, and I choose to take into my family everyone who believes that. You know why you believed if you do? You know why you believed? Because God wanted you to believe, and God's Holy Spirit moved upon your heart and as the message was given to you in whatever form it was given, as the message was given to you, God's Holy Spirit gave you eyes to see something you'd never seen before. And you believed God and were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul said, that's, that's what my message is about. It's about preaching the truth that God's elect believe that's what it is second part of our focus however is mature discipleship if you stop at the gospel if we never get beyond preaching the gospel we will not have done our job something happens after that Life goes on. What kind of life is it going to be? And so when, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, you remember what he said. Go and make disciples of all nations, people from every walk of life and every, every tribe and tongue and kindred. Go make disciples amongst all those people, teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded you. The very last word in the epistle, the second epistle of Peter, verse 18 of chapter 3 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. God expects you and me to grow. If you're still in the same place you were the day you were saved, you better go get along with with the Lord and check up on whether or not you really are saved. Because God saved you for a reason. He wanted to make you into a different person. And the way he chooses to do that is through his word. So Jesus was concerned about discipleship. So was Paul. You remember what he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2? What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, understand what that is saying. That's saying once you have 
have witnessed and given out the gospel and someone has responded, you're not finished yet. And you won't be finished until that person, as a result of your faithful discipleship ministry, you're not finished till that person gets to the place where he is giving the gospel to other people and is working with them until they get to the place where they're giving the gospel. When your disciple has made a disciple who is witnessing and winning others to Christ, then you know you've, you've got there. But don't give up till then. That's what Paul's saying. Why did Paul, why did Paul give gifted men to the church? Or why did God do that? Well, Paul tells us, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Guess what? When our new pastor comes, it will be his job to equip us to carry on the ministry. It will not be his job to carry on the ministry. We are to carry on the ministry. And God is going to send us a man who is uniquely gifted and qualified to equip us for doing that well. And that should be our priority. Third priority has to do with our character. Our character. Because Paul says he ministers for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. He ministers his word because he knows it's intended to produce godliness in our lives. None of us are as godly as we ought to be. Some of you know some of the rest of us well enough to wonder whether we're godly at all. But that's what, that's what the Christian life is about, isn't it? The Christian life is about, about suddenly being rescued from the muck and mire of sin and being cleaned up and redirected and gradually moving on in a different direction. That's what it's all about. And I don't know anything in the scriptures that says that there ever comes a time in my life or your life or anybody else's life in which we can say, God finally has made me completely godly. Good luck with that. You know when we will be completely godly? When we get to glory. That's what Romans 8 said, isn't it? Whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. When is that going to happen? John said in 1 John, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In the meantime... We ought to be growing. We ought to be more godly today than we were yesterday. 
Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7 and said, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see, it's not a passive thing. This, this, this developing godliness is not passive. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of body and spirit. God, God has set the objective out there, and God has said, this is where I want to take you, and in the meantime, here's what you ought to be doing about it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There are a lot of statements like that in the New Testament that cause me to shudder. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's serious business. And it doesn't say that if you aren't 100% like Jesus today, that means you're lost. That's not what it's saying. But it is saying that if your life is not characterized by a gradual increase of holiness, then there's some question. Because that's why God saved us, to make us different. And so Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, admonishes us as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, it's a contradiction for an unholy person to claim a holy God as his father. Just doesn't work. It's an incongruity. So our character ought to be a priority in our lives. Fourth, there is the priority of our assurance. I'm glad that's in there. There's an awful lot about the way I get through life every day that makes me shaky if I didn't have some of these promises. What is our assurance? Well, Paul says that he does all of this in hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life. Now, you know, the first question you ought to ask yourself is, wait a minute, I thought we already had eternal life. And we do. But there's coming a day in which that eternal life will be fully experienced. We don't experience it in its fullness today. I have eternal life. And if I were to die at this moment while I'm preaching, some of the rest of you would too if that happened, but if I were to die at this moment, I would go to glory. I have no doubts about that. I have eternal life. But I know that when the day comes that I'm ushered into the halls of heaven of whatever sort they are, there will be a whole lot more eternal life there. It will be the only kind of life available. 
and I have hope for that. That's where I'm going. That's, what, that's one of the things that keeps me motivated. We have hope of eternal life. Well, what is our hope based upon? Why can we be so sure about it? First of all, Paul says, hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, our hope is based on God's character. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Let me tell you, when God says you have eternal life, you have eternal life. And there's no way to break that. Our hope is assured because not only is it resting on God's character, God who never lies, but it's resting on God's promise. This God who never lies promised before the ages began. Now, I wrestled with that phrase for a while. Promise before the ages begin. So in my cross-referencing, my, my first tendency was to go to this passage like Romans 1 where we're told that, that all this great truth was given to us to the prophets and through them to us. But wait a minute. It says it was promised before the ages began. If that's the case, the prophets weren't even here. They weren't involved. Promise to whom? If it was before time began, then who was there? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What's this promise about? This is about the triune God agreeing amongst themselves that each one of them would do whatever they needed to do to make sure that you and I were saved from our sin. No wonder that promise is so sure. God going to break a promise to himself? God the Father going to say to God the Holy Spirit, well, I know, it's important, but uh, yeah, I'm just tired of messing with those bullheads down there, so, so don't go convict them anymore. Is he going to do that? <laughs> I don't think so. So, to underscore that for us, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. My assurance rests on God's agreement among themselves. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and they're not going to deny each other. And my hope is resting on that. 
Our fifth priority is what I call our stewardship. I call it that because of the way Paul words this in verse 3. At the proper time, this was manifested in his word through the preaching which, with which I have been entrusted. See, at just the right time in history, God began to send forth his message. And he has entrusted that message to all of us who have heard it. Just like Paul felt that he was entrusted with it. This is a, this is a sacred trust. God has said from the very beginning, I have something I want you to do for me. I want you to take this gospel message and I want you to see that it gets disseminated every place. Our God has said, I trust this to you. This is important to me. I want the world to hear that my son died for them and rose again so that they could have a home in heaven. I want the world to know that and I want you to go tell them. God's stewardship assignment to each one of us. And we can talk about stewardship at many levels, stewardship of our funds, stewardship of our time, stewardship of our talents, and all that would be true. But this is the stewardship that is binding whatever it takes for us to take God's message and see that it gets disseminated. Whatever it takes, we must do it because God has entrusted it to us. That's, that's both exciting and awe-inspiring. God has entrusted something to me? Yeah, he has. And it's the preaching of the gospel. That's what he's trusted to you and to me. Question is... How faithful are we being to that? By the way, let me just take a little side trip here. When Paul said, uh, which verse, beginning of verse 3, at the proper time, this was manifested. Have you ever thought about how, how precise and exact was the timing of God in bringing the gospel to bear in the world? You ever thought about that? You know, before, before Jesus came into the world, we just had the prophets who rebuked sin and called for repentance, but really didn't offer people any way of getting past that. Why did Jesus come into the world when he did? You ever thought about that? Think about it. When Jesus was born, the world was living under what historians call Pax Romani, 
the Peace of Rome. The Roman Empire dominated the entire known world. They had put down all rebellions, and there was no warfare going on. So now it's safe to move around all over the world because you're not going to find yourself in any dangerous situation because there's no war going on. Not only so, but since the whole world was one world, in effect, they adopted one language. Now, all the rest of the places where Rome dominated, they had their own languages, but the universal language, that's a concept in itself. Universal language? Yeah. Greek was the language of the day. Greek was the language of commerce. Greek was the language of scholars. Greek was the language of communication in the whole world. So whatever your native language was, if you knew Greek, you could get along wherever you went. And isn't it interesting that the New Testament writers wrote in Greek? So, uh, the world was dominated and at peace. The world had one language. Rome was very interested in and concerned with maintaining good interactions with all of their provinces all over the place, so they were great road builders. So you could go any place in the Roman Empire and have good roads to travel on. So in that atmosphere, God introduced his son who grew up and preached God's message and his followers began to disseminate that message. They began to go every place. They began to preach in Greek, other languages too, but Greek was there. They could get here and there with with no unseen difficulties, not as easy as we can, but certainly they could get there. You see, at the proper time, God knew what he was doing. Paul could have said, look, God planned it just right. This was the right time for all that is about the gospel to come about now. Take it and preach it. Amen. Take it and preach it, brothers. Final priority, our resources. I've had to, I've had to not only look at this one as a point in my sermon, but I've had to look at it in such a way as to hear, hear God saying, are you listening? Because I have to tell you, and I've told others already, a number of you won't be surprised to hear this, but after I had agreed to do what I'm doing right now, to in effect be pulpit supply, which means I have to be ready to minister to this congregation every Sunday for this foreseeable future. After I'd agreed with that and started praying and studying and thinking about, now what? I really was thinking that. Now what? 
what have I done? I mean, it's one thing for Jeremy to call me up and say, I've got to be gone on someplace for the next two weeks. Can you preach for me? Well, yeah, sure I can. I mean, if I can't come up with any new sermons, I've got a file full of them. That's no trick. But that's not what's happening here. What has been said to me is, look, we're without a pastor. We don't have anybody to minister to us. Will you do it? <laughs> and I just, there just been so many times in the last two or three weeks that I've said to God, God, I I just don't think I've got it in me. And then I began to study this passage in Titus, and I ran across the assurance Paul gave to Titus. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. That's our resources. It comes from where? God the Father and Christ Jesus the Savior. So it's not ever going to run out. It's, it's not ever not going to be available. And what does it consist of? Grace. What is grace? Grace is something that sustains us. You remember Paul's testimony. It doesn't have anything to do with, with preaching the gospel, at least contextually it doesn't. But it's a principle that applies to all sorts of things that God expects of us. When he had wrestled with his thorn in the flesh, you remember? To Paul, the only answer was, get rid of this thing. Take it away from me. I can't take it anymore. There have been times in, that I've been thinking, Lord, find somebody else. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll wing it on Sunday, but get somebody else. But... God's answer to me is the same as it was to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You know what that's saying? That's saying, Brad, if you felt like you had it all together, then you wouldn't need God and you'd try to get along without him, and that would be a disaster. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's application, and it ought to be our application, is therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And brothers and sisters, if, if you, like me, are going to take all of these priorities seriously and try to weave them into the fabric of your life, I can tell you it won't happen apart from the grace of God. You need and I need to cast ourselves helplessly upon God, who when we, when we find ourselves in our attempt to do what God wants done, we find ourselves in a situation we can't deal with, there is God's grace to sustain us. God's grace also enables us. Ephesians 4, 7, 
Paul said, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Do you get the connection there? Every one of us has been gifted by God. I don't know what your gift is. I sometimes wonder what mine is. So do a lot of other people. But anyway, we, we only, we're not responsible for each other's gift. Each one of us has been given some kind of spiritual gift with which to minister to the body of Christ and through the body of Christ to the lost world. Each of us have received a gift, and with it, with it we have received the grace of God that will enable us to use the gift. Every one of us. There's no excuse for any of us to ever say, I can't do that. Let me use an old West Virginia phrase, hogwash. If God's grace is with you, and if you have a gift, then it is with you, and you do have a gift. The Bible says so. If all of those things are true, then don't say, I can't do it. No, you can't, but you're nothing but an instrument anyway. God can. And that's what he wants for us. Grace and peace. What good is peace? Peace is a stabilizer. Jesus said in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, you know, what Jesus is doing there is acknowledging something that most of us don't readily acknowledge. When, when we have trouble and difficulties and anxious moments, it comes as a surprise. We're, not, we're Christians, after all. We're children of God. We're not supposed to experience that. Jesus had no such illusions. Matter of fact, in another place in John's gospel, he said, in the world, you will have trouble. But I'm giving you peace. And it's not the kind of peace that the world offers. What kind of peace does the world offer? The world offers you peace if you can find a way to get rid of all your trouble. Well, <laughs> have you tried that? <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. You might get rid of this one, but there'll be a half a dozen over here to move in its place. I think it was William Barclay. I love his word studies. He's great on it. But he said, peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is the confidence that things are all right in spite of trouble. And that's the kind of peace God gives to us. I should say, too, that one other thing that we ought to recognize because we're moving into the time in which we celebrate it, but peace is also involved in reconciliation. You know that, don't you? Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We who have been justified have a reconciliation, a peaceful relationship with the God with whom we once were at war. And that's a peace that can't be shaken or destroyed. Well, brothers and sisters, God is calling us to set things in order. I think what God is calling this church to do is to prepare itself so that when he sends his man to be our shepherd, all that brother will have to do is just step in and keep moving ahead. He can hit the ground running. He won't have to make any changes. He won't have to make any adjustments. He won't have to deal with any problems that we've ignored and swept under the rug. God is wanting us to do what he wanted Titus to do. Set things in order. Get ready. I'm sending you somebody. Get ready for it. And I suggest to you that we should examine our own hearts with these six priorities in mind. Let's ask ourselves personally, before God, let's ask ourselves how much of a priority are these things in my life? Are these my priorities? Do these priorities order my life? Do they dictate my decisions and my values? Is this what I'm about? And as we do that, I think we should hold each other accountable for it. When we have those times in which we are visiting, don't just chit-chat. Don't waste a lot of time talking about how you wish it was warmer or how elated you are that the brewers are doing so well or whether you agree with the latest drafts that the Packers have made. Who cares? Don't just chit-chat about nothing. Don't spend your time visiting with one another about things that only have to do with here and now. Let's talk to each other about these priorities, about how we're doing, weaving them into our lives, about how we can help each other take them more seriously. Let's talk about what God wants us to do.